Well, thanks for joining us once again on the internationally recognized Inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Savalera, excited to be with you behind the microphone once again for another great week to discuss the things that are going on inside our great career field. And speaking about the word great, here he is, my partner, the one we call Kelly Grayson. Kelly Grayson, KG, welcome to another week of Inside EMS. KG, how are you doing this week? I'm I'm good, man. I, I always wonder when you say internationally recognized podcast, what what would that be like? If it's like we walking down the street and someone's, oh, I know you. You're inside EMS. That's my horrible, horrible Cockney accent. You know, and it makes me miss Rob Lawrence. But I will tell you this: that we look at the uh, analytics of the shows. Right, we know how many shows are downloaded in a day. Yeah. And we do have some, uh, we do have a lot of international, I mean, as far away as China, as close as Canada. So, I mean, and everything in between. So it's very, very humbling that we have such a great audience and, you know, we do this show for you and we sat around and we thought about what inside EMS would be about. We were just hoping that we'd get some people to listen. And over the past eight years, we are just so humbled by the fact that, uh, we get to come and inform and entertain and persuade. But today we're going to give you another great show. And my good friend Kelly Grayson is on the EMS World Tour once again as he starts to put his pen to paper and give us a little bit of his uh, wisdom as he penned an article that came out on March 1st, 2022. Top 10 ways to ruin a good EMT. Avoid these mistakes to onboard EMTs who will thrive in EMS and give their all to your agency. And Kelly, I got to tell you, man, I think one, it's awesome to read your stuff. I think, you know, I I could hear your voice in my head when I read. So it's, that means we're close. I mean, that means we're really close. But the other thing is, I think it's timely. Yeah. Cause when we start to think about things like recruiting and retention and Mm -hmm. EMS shortage, we've got to change the way that we're doing business, right? I mean, we've got to be able to think about the people who we're bringing into our organization. And we may have to be able to change some practices. We may have to change some hiring practices. We may have to change some onboarding practices. We may have to change some leadership practices to ensure that we're getting the people we need into our organizations, but we're allowing them to become part of the culture and then we're allowing them to become part of the organization. This is the whole thing and the science behind organizational socialization when we start to think about developing the culture of these people who are coming into the organization. And that organizational socialization, Kelly, starts when people apply to be part of your organization because they have some type of opinion about the organization. They may feel like they want to, they've wanted to be part of this organization forever. So that organizational culture starts to develop when they first put an application in, but I applaud you. It was a great article and maybe just give us the catalyst. What made you write this and and pick this topic? Well, it's it's something I've been number one, EMS one loves listicles. (laughs) So, uh, it's just the distillation of, of the things that, that I've seen uh, and have seen throughout my career where, where people go wrong uh, and, and ruin or burn out a good EMT or, or make them leave a particular agency only to grow and, and flower into the provider they could be at some other place that treats them better or is smarter in, in how they handle them. Uh, and, and, man, you see so many mistakes in how we treat newbies uh ems eats their own young 
And as Nancy is fond of pointing out, uh, the old Peter Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it, you, can, you can have the best of intentions in the world. You can have the best onboarding process. You can have a, a uh, comprehensive and detailed FTO uh, and clearance program. But if the people already at your agency don't buy into what you're doing, and they have they they're emblematic of a rotten culture. They're going to ruin uh, the next people that come into the agency. They're going to they're going to circumvent your efforts uh, no matter what happens. So uh, when you go to a, a place like that, sometimes you you don't realize until you're in it, you know, and you're getting a paycheck from them that uh, you've you've signed on with the wrong place. So, but it also strikes me that that so many people they're their understanding or their concept of leadership is still makes all these mistakes. And it's not leadership. It's, it's throwing your weight around and, and, and managing, which is a different animal altogether than, than leading. And uh, they, they still do these things. And it seems like, especially now, we still tend to, to make these same mistakes over and over again. I wonder when our profession is going to mature beyond that, but uh, I think that's just the state of, of, uh, Healthcare in general, it's certainly not unique to EMS, uh, and the worse staffing issues become, uh, the more these problems are magnified. So we have a top 10 list, and the first one that you have is, you know, uh, kind of what I mentioned is that we, we rush or we shortcut our onboarding process. I think this is important. We are in such need to bring people into our organization we are in such need to make sure that we have the butts in the seats and the, yeah. you know, the, the rubber on the road that we forget that we have to be able to ensure that we bring people into our organization with the intent of bringing them into the culture of the organization. Now, one of the things that I want to bring up before we kind of talk about this is there's two focuses on culture. There is what the leaders think the culture is. Uh -huh. and then there is actual the culture that's at the street level, right? And if oh, yeah. those two cultures are not the same, that just means there's a disconnect in leadership. And if there's a disconnect in that leadership where the leaders think the culture of the organization is okay, and the people who are on the street feel that the culture of that organization is toxic, and you rush bringing somebody into your organization you are now going to have an employee who's toxic. More importantly, you are going to have an employee who may be a great employee or may who would have been a great employee, but now who the field is saying that they're toxic just because they haven't onboarded the right way. And what's your take on that? I, I, I agree entirely. I, I've listened to you and in, in, in our eight years together say repeatedly that, that the essence of leadership is giving your people the tools they need to not only survive, but to thrive and grow at your agency. And, and that's, you know, that's effective leadership in a nutshell. Give people the tools they need to thrive. And when you throw them into the fray and, and it's, it's just fresh meat and canton fodder, and I know this is a problem that we deal with, especially right now with COVID and the last two and a half years have been horrific we still tend to rush that onboarding process. We're, we're short-sighted, can't see the forest for the trees. We look at the next 30 days, or we look at the next week, or we look at the next shift on the schedule and all those open spots, failing to realize that 
employee turnover is is part and parcel of the the staff shortage and if we weren't constantly in a hiring cycle then we wouldn't have near as bad a a staff shortage you got to retain the people that you recruit you've got to keep them happy you got to keep them motivated and and productive you don't do that by throwing people into the meat grinder and and rushing the onboarding process they have to be comfortable at what they're doing. And people who are comfortable at what they're doing both do it better and they do it with more satisfaction. They do it longer. And, and this, this whole, uh, get the meat in the seat and let's, let's crank out as many EMTs, you know, the, the current boot camp classes have, have, have really taken off again. And I think that's a horrible idea, but, uh, it's, uh, it's a short-sighted approach to a, a major staffing problem, but, um, you know, I only I wonder if those guys who learned an EMT class in a month of eight hour days, 40 hour weeks, uh, wonder what holes there are in their knowledge. And, and have they been adequately uh, introduced to the culture of EMS, not just the culture of the agency? Do they have an accurate uh, and realistic view of the culture of EMS or are we just throwing that away in our haste to get meat in the seat? A lot of other great things that you have here. Number two is pair them with an object lesson rather than a mentor. It's always great that we have people who could be role models and mentors instead of the people who are usually crispy around the edges. And usually we put these new people with the folks that are uh, have trouble keeping partners. But number yeah. three, you talk about throw them into the overtime meat grinder. You know, this is the I, I was I don't know that I agreed with this when I read it. Because this is the nature of the beast of EMS. Two things. One, uh, a lot of our peers need this overtime to help make the ends meet because, so, you know, we know that the wage isn't as great as it should be. But number mm-hmm. two, overtime's part of the system. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we need to know is that uh, the new people, as you point out, they, they may not know when to say no. Um, but this is one of the things that we will do that will help burn out people fast. You know, on the flip side of this, Kelly, I'd be interested to know your thoughts. The people who are newer who are coming into EMS and they want to get as much as they can because they've just been chomping at the bit to be part of a great system. Yeah, I understand when you're when you're 20 years old or and heck, we're hiring EMTs at age 18 now and, and putting them on ambulances. When you're that age, I was no exception. Uh, you are flush with excitement about what you're able to do now. You want to dive headfirst in your first career. And you see that first paycheck with some significant overtime on it. And you go, oh, wow, I'm going to love this. But eventually that wears off, man. And, <laughs> and it's not healthy for us to work, um, you know, five 24-hour shifts a week. We've we got guys that are we got guys that are pulling 96-hour weeks on a regular basis or or working 120 hours a week, that sort of thing. And, and that is absolutely not healthy in psychologically, mentally, emotionally, or physically to, to push yourself to that, that limit. But we, we also have to have meat in the seats. And it's awful tempting for a scheduler or, or a manager to, to plug somebody into that and go, you, know, you sure, you good, and, and leave it at that and not look at uh, at the toll it takes on them. Just the operational tempo alone, Chris, is enough to, to break somebody if you do that for too long. When I was a new paramedic, uh, when I was a new paramedic, I worked 
or actually when I was going to paramedic school for the, the 15 week accelerated course that I took every single moment of the day I was on duty every single moment. If I was, if I was not working on an ambulance uh, in uniform, I was, I was uh, dressed in civvies and attending a paramedic class. And as soon as I was done with paramedic class, I would come back to work, put my uniform back on. And that went on for six months. Uh, even, even when I was done with the cognitive, uh, the didactic section of the class, I was doing clinicals when I would normally be going to class and, and it, it wears on you. You know, when you work, I work 64, 24 hour shifts in a row with no time off. And even with an operational tempo as slow as we had right then, I was, I was getting to be pretty darn crispy. You, you got some, you got to have some time away from the, the, the grinder to recharge your batteries a little bit and remember uh, what you loved about the profession and, and how idealistic you were and what you look forward to uh, before the constant dialysis transfers and the emergent runs for, for non-emergent problems and, and the COVID uh, grinder and all that start to beat you down. What do you do as, as a manager to, to kind of curb the enthusiasm a little bit uh, of the EMT that's just willing to work himself to death because he thinks that uh, he's invincible and, and, and can't break. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that we've got to be able to think about is how much work they're really doing. When you talk yeah. about 96 hours, when you talk about 100 and some odd hours a week, I mean, what does the system look like? What's the UHU? How much are they running? You know, if they're running 24-hour shifts and they're doing 22 calls in a 24-hour period, if I'm allowing to take them to take those shifts... I'm just as culpable if something happens. So I need to be able to talk about that work-life balance, right? I mean, as a leader, I mean, we really have to be able to help them, the new employees, figure out what's a good place for them to be. But from a safety standpoint, if I have a busy system, I shouldn't let anybody be doing 96-hour shifts in a row. Yeah. They should be doing something that they could be able to handle. I don't like the fact of people doing 48 hours in a row if it's a busy system. You know, if you're not sleeping, you know, eight good hours a night, um, there's a problem with that. I think that we can handle back-to-back yeah. -back, uh, 24-hour shifts if we can sleep 16 of those 48 hours. But, you know, I've got to be able to set that to say, you know what, you're just not working, you know, 100 hours in a pay period. That's just too much for you. But uh, that's what I would do. But, you know, you uh, continue to go on. Another great one that you have is that uh, quit telling the new EMTs to harden up. And this is something that we heard for a lot of years, Kelly, yeah. that uh, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And this is what created you and I have been advocates. And we talked about this on this show numerous times that this is what's caused people to stay inside their shell and not talk mm -hmm. about their feelings and not talk about that call and not talk about what it meant to them, or maybe just allowing somebody to cry after their first pediatric arrest. And, uh, but we do that. We say, you know what? You're not going to make it. You're not tough enough. You're not hard enough. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. So I applaud you for putting this in there. But what this does is it sends the wrong message that your emotions are not important but we're emotional, compassionate people, and yeah. this is why we do this job. Yeah, and your emotions are most important. Your, your emotions and the compassion you bring to your patients, it's every bit as important as your clinical skills and knowledge, every bit. Our, our patients don't look at us 
from a customer service standpoint and, and, and gratitude, they don't look at us as, as clinicians. They, they want to know, as, as Teddy Roosevelt said, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And Chris, have you ever had someone come up to you at the grocery store and say, I remember you, you wield a laryngoscope with the panache of an airway samurai, or man, I have never seen anyone interpret a 12 lead EKG as accurately as you can. And, and might I also say, sir, that your IV therapy technique is stellar. No, they say you stood in the rain and held a umbrella over my grandmother while you were loading her in the ambulance. And, and that just struck me. And I really appreciate that. Or I was scared to death when my kid had the seizure and you made me feel so much better and you took care of him like he was your own kid. And, and uh, I'm grateful for that. And that's the kind of thing that matters to our patients and to our patients, family members. And you can't invest yourself in an endeavor uh, and be really stellar at it without some emotional investment. You, you, you don't need to harden up. What you need to do is, is, is be like a, a Milky Way. You might have a hard exterior, but a chewy nougat center. Uh, and you have to develop some emotional resilience. But there's nothing at all wrong with feeling uh, about a call. Uh, the only thing wrong is if you feel so much about a call that it paralyzes you and you can't do your job. That, that's a problem. But otherwise, getting the shakes afterwards, uh, having to call a mentor, having to go home and cry on your, your loved one's shoulder, all that's good. If it helps you cope and helps you bounce back and heal, then, then that's a good thing. And we need to stop telling EMTs that they need to harden up. That just, that's, that's foolish. So one of the next things that you have along those lines, Kelly, is hazing, allowing hazing to happen. Yeah. And, you know, EMS and the fire service is historic for hazing their new people. And there's, there's a point where this hazing crosses a line, you know, it's, it's all fun and games when you send your, you know, your new EMT over to the hospital, to get a spare tire for the gurney. But, you know, when you yeah. start to bully and when you start to haze and when yeah. you start to harass, uh, that's where we take things a little bit too far. And, and maybe we just need to stop all of this, you know, introduction to the agency by having them swallow 12 goldfish. Um, because I think what it happens automatically is it, uh, you know, it makes them second-class citizens from the beginning, you know, just because we had to do it doesn't mean that we got to continue that cycle. And I got to tell you, man, I was hazed and I, I hazed with the best of them. I mean, I did things, you know, uh, you know, I did things like I put baby powder in the air vents. I've saran wrapped the toilet. Yeah. I've, <laughs> yeah, I've put, I've put KY jelly on the uh, steering wheel. So, I mean, you know, just those stupid things that you do to get you in trouble that you're not supposed to do. But there's a line, Kelly. And I think that when yes. these new people come in, we, we cross that line and uh, we treat them like second class citizens. Maybe it's time to put that tradition to bed. Yeah. I, you know, there's something to be said for a little. Uh, I actually believe that a little bit of joking, a little bit of camaraderie is a team building thing. It helps. You know, it helps a little le bit of levity uh, and, and a good laugh uh, builds and builds bonds and friendships and, and trust rather than destroy it. Uh, but if it but the problem is, is, is it doesn't stay there sometimes. And sometimes uh, your your one man's team building is another man's humiliating uh, encounter. And if it makes someone feel bad about themselves or embarrassed or humiliated, You've crossed the line from from uh, a simple joke to hazing, and and 
nothing we do should make our our uh, colleagues feel belittled or humiliated or anything else. The thing is, though, is, is you know, you would think that a normal person would be able to see that line, yet people still haze. So either they don't see that line or they don't care about that line, which goes back to the culture of the agency and, and are you attracting the right people uh, and, and is your onboarding process effectively communicating the agency culture, the good parts of the agency culture and, and not the bad parts? Uh, that's, that's a question for we could spend an entire show on. But this, this business about bullying and hazing and practical jokes on people is juvenile. Yeah. Uh, if you want to send, if you want to send your rookie out to the to the garage to to get a gallon of blinker fluid when you do your truck check, okay, wonderful. Um, that's not going to kill anybody. And it's not going to make them feel humiliated. Uh, on the other hand, when you well, it depends when you on who it is, it may, depends on uh, who it is, and depends on who it is, they may feel yeah, it depends on but who it is. We have to, and, and that's the thing where we also need to be able to say and and be willing to say um, rather than harden up, man. I had to go through this. Say. I'm sorry that that made you feel uh, that way. That was not my intent, and, and I hardly apologize. And don't do that anymore. Right. You know, take so, your feelings into consideration. Yeah. So the last one uh, I think we talk about today, which was your 10th thing, and this was a great article, Kelly, and we didn't cover them all. For everybody that's out there, I encourage you to go ahead and read the article. Uh, I think it's very entertaining. I think you'll get a lot out of it. But the last one, it talks about, having a different set of standards for managers and supervisors. One of the kicks that I've been on over the past 18 months is to say that, you know, the days of command and control and leading from a position of authority are over. There is no one job in an organization that's more important than the other. And we have different responsibilities as a chief of EMS. I have different responsibilities from the EMT that has to be able to make sure that that ambulance is stocked. Well, we need each other to do the work. My responsibilities as a leader is to make sure that we have money is to make sure that the deployment plan is right is to make sure the schedules are done is to make sure that there's good inspiration and motivation. And we've got to be able to remember that my job as a leader isn't to think that you work for me, but my job is to work for you. I have to be able to make sure that you have the equipment, that you have the skills, that you have the knowledge that when a mother hands you a three-month-old, that's not the time to figure out that you're uncomfortable with a pediatric arrest. And Mm -hmm. we have to be able to understand and change the paradigm and the leadership structure of how we run our organizations, that we are a team, that we are a community, that we are people that need each other to get the job done. And I'm, I, I fear that a lot of people in EMS, and I've been talking to a lot of people in this, in this community paramedicine transition uh, lately, that uh, uh, some of their leadership skills that I hear them say, it just still irks me that there are leaders in our career field that think that the uh, workforce is there for them. And uh, we've got to change our thought process. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely, definitely do. You know, uh, the, the whole different set of rules for managers and supervisors, I wrote a column some years back called practicing responsibility upwards. And, and in, in that column, I talked about, the dangers of rigid rank hierarchies and, and how they, they don't lend themselves well to EMS. You know, you, you can't have someone with, with a higher rank and a, and a lower uh, clinical qualification, for example, you know, you, you, it's, it's not good practice 
to have your lieutenant be an EMT uh, and the driver on the truck be a paramedic uh, who's making the, the uh, patient care decisions. Those rigid rank hierarchies uh, don't generally work. And a good friend of mine who is both uh, experience as a supervisor and, and leader uh, in a uh, law enforcement agency and, and uh, an officer in the U.S. Army said it does work if you practice responsibility upward, if you practice responsibility upward. And he said the, he said the, the quote at the very beginning of that bullet point is a rank hath its privileges, but rank also hath its obligations and its responsibilities. And those last two outweigh the former. Uh, you have more responsibilities and more obligations and you have privileges. And if you're not practicing it that way, you've got a different set of rules for supervisors and managers than you do for your crews. And that is corrosive to morale. Uh, if you, tr if you practice servant leadership, you're going to have subordinates who will break their back to make you look good. And that's, and, and ultimately that, that helps the agency look good and helps it work well. But Hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. I only put 10 bullet points up there, but there, we could talk for days about the things that agencies do wrong to ruin their new EMTs. How's it done at your agency? What are your pet peeves? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Y'all rate us on iTunes, and we'll catch you next week.